Where do we need to turn? Hebrews. Hebrews. That's right. So we are going to be in the letter of Hebrews. So if you want to make your way to Hebrews chapter 1, there's a table of contents. If you're not really familiar, it's going to be towards the back of the Bible. And so if you get down there to Hebrews, and then uh, um, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd and John, Jude and Revelation, if you get down there in that area, um, then you'll know that you're uh, down there um, towards the letter of of Hebrews. And so our practice has been on Wednesday nights we go through a different book every single week. Well, until last week, because last week we spent a little more time in prayer and I didn't want to just fly through Hebrews in 10 minutes. And so I broke kind of the whole pattern of what we've been trying to do. And so we kind of started with the background, when it was written, a little bit about who it was written to, maybe some guesses or some ideas on maybe who wrote the letter of Hebrews and just kind of did a, a brief flyover. Tonight, I want to come back and I just want to look through. We're going to go chapter by chapter. Of course, we don't have enough time to go verse by verse, but maybe chapter by chapter and just say, what is the book of Hebrews about? Why does it matter to us tonight? And what can the book of Hebrews teach us about our Christian walk? So the way, the way that I, it kind of makes sense in my head, and if it doesn't make sense in your head, just hopefully you can track where I'm going. Anybody have any experience with livestock judging? Okay. Well, so that's more than I expected. Okay, so in the whole agriculture world, especially when you go to the fair, sometimes they'll put on competitions, and usually it's species dependent. So let's say you're going to be judging pigs. Normally they'll bring four pigs into a pen, and the goal is is for you to come up and look at these four pigs and to place the four pigs, first, second, third, and fourth. They may have a pen of sheep. They may have some cattle lined up. Sometimes you may get chickens. Um, sometimes you may do performance in horses. Sometimes um, I collegiate, when I was going to college OSU, I was on the collegiate dairy judging team. And so we went um, multiple states where we would go to these competitions. And they may have 10 classes or 12 classes. And each class has four dairy cows. And you would get there and try to place them one, two, three, and four. That's part of the livestock judging event or competition if you will but there's another aspect of it called reasons so the idea is that let's say we're all going to judge livestock and we'll have a pen of pigs and we'll have a pen of sheep and we'll have some cattle over there we all go out there and judge them first, second, third, and fourth. But then you come to a time of reasons. And when you sit down with reasons, I am going to, well, I'm not going to sit down. I would walk into an area, a room, or maybe someplace off to the side. And let's say Mr. Ben is the person I'm giving reasons to. I'd walk up and I'd stand about this far from Mr. Ben. And I would go on about a three to five minute explanation to Mr. Ben why I placed those particular pigs one, two, three, and four. So I would usually, and normally it's always from memory, and so I would go up and I would say, I place this class of pigs, um, you know, A, C, D, B, or however, the, however, they're, however they're identified, but I'd go into three to five minutes of explaining to him, this is why I did it. And so I would say, okay, so in between first and second place, this is why first place is first place, and second place is second place, and then I'd go to a middle pair, and I'd say, this is why second place is second place, and third place was third place, and then I go to a bottom pair. This is why third place was third place, and fourth place was fourth place. And so I'm sitting there trying to convince him that I'm right. 
Now the problem is, is that when you go judge, you don't know there's always someone that's considered to be the official, or maybe a group of people that are the officials. So we go to a life judging contest, and Mr. Wayne and Mr. Ron, they're the officials, so the rest of us go, and we think how we're going to place them. Mr. Ron and Mr. Wayne come up, and they say, no, the official is this order right here. So when you sit there with reasons, Mr. Ben already knows what the official placing is. So if I go up and he knows the official placing is A, B, C, D, and I tell Mr. Ben that I place this class D, C, B, A, I have got a great amount of work to do to try to convince him that I'm right. Is anybody tracking what I'm saying here? So the whole idea is, is you are trying to make an argument for why you believe this to be true. And every time you make the argument, the person you're making the argument to is thinking things on their own. And they've got their own ideas. And, they, and, and sometimes like over in Lincoln County, especially in the spring, there may be 125... Um, high school's kids competing in this competition. So Mr. Ben's going to listen to maybe a hundred different high school kids all come through there trying to convince him. And so he's listening to a lot of arguments and he's listening to a lot of back and forth. Well, sometimes there's things like that in life where you have a position and you have an opinion and you feel strongly about your your um, belief in a certain subject and you get around somebody and then you're trying to convince them, this is why I think I'm right. And this is why I believe what I believe and this is why I want you to believe what I believe. I mean, there would be times that I would go in, unless I got Mr. Ben, and I've got a certain stance, and I'm going to have a certain body posture, and I'm going to try to convince him that whatever he has thought before about this class of animals is all wrong. Because I am the correct opinion. I know the right way. Now, you say, well, why does that have to do with the letter of Hebrews? Well, the letter of Hebrews is a article or is a document, whether it's a sermon that was written down or whether it was just a letter written to a group of Jewish people, it's an argument saying this is why Jesus is the Messiah. This is why Jesus is the Messiah. This is why Jesus is not Moses, but is a better type, a better example than Moses. This is why Jesus is better than the Old Testament law. This is why Jesus is worthy of your faith. This is why Jesus is the only thing needed for salvation. This is why Jesus is the only thing that matters compared to a lot of other trivial things that we might find in religion. And so that's the whole argument, the letter of Hebrews, is making the case, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so the writer here, in every single chapter, all the way up through chapter 10, is making a different side of the argument, and making it from a different angle. So the he is sitting there and he's writing to a group of Jews and these Jews probably have different opinions. They've been taught different things. They've had different rabbis. They've had different Jewish traditions that have said different ideas that probably um, the history will tell us that sometimes and depending on where they're at geographically, some of them had different leanings in one thing or another. So you get into some of these situations when he's writing, some of this is lost because quite frankly, we're not Jews. 
So there's some challenges that when we come to the letter of Hebrews, it's not nearly as easy of a letter for us to digest and to really grasp as some of the other epistles or some of the other letters written by Paul. And there's some challenges here. And I just want to make sure you're aware of these challenges as we come into this. The first challenge is the view of Moses. Now, if you're writing to a Hebrew person or a Jewish person, they had a very high view of Moses. It was Moses that brought them out of the Egyptian bondage. It was Moses that led them through the wilderness all the way up to the brink of the promised land. It was Moses that was the visible representation, that intermediary, if you were, were, if you would, that representation of God to the people. So they had a very high view of Moses. That's why all throughout the Gospels, they will come to Jesus and say, well, Moses told us this, and Moses taught us that, and Moses, 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 because that is who they held up as being, hey, next to God, this is the vice god this 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 person their authority and their word has a, a great amount of weight well in our culture today we think of moses more as being a historical figure not necessarily as much as being a spiritual authority in our lives so that's one challenge the second challenge is our view of the law none of us in this room have ever lived under the old testament law So we really don't have any concept of what that's like of being presented on the eighth day in the tabernacle or going through those transitions of migrating back and forth for the Jewish festivals or every Friday night at sundown all work ceasing and you being in a house eating unleavened bread as Sabbath or Shabbat begins on Friday night and staying all the way through. We don't have any idea of the festivals. We don't have any idea of the routines. We don't have any idea of what it looks like to live in the law. The people that they're writing to did. Also, there were some different traditions and there's some different expectations that if you were a Jewish person receiving or hearing this letter in the context and the time chronologically that it's written, there's going to be some things that are going to hit them differently than hit us. Hebrews is a really hard letter, especially when you think about it in a 2023 context. And challenges come with similarities. So hopefully I'll, hopefully I'll be able to point out some of these to you as we walk through these. But just as in the time of Hebrews, the letter of the Hebrews, there's also dissenting voices today. So as the, the writer of the letter, the author of the letter is saying, hey, this is who Jesus is. There were other people around saying, oh, we don't think that's who Jesus is. Oh, we don't think you need to listen to him. Oh, we don't think he's that big of a deal. And the same way today. There's people that say church isn't a big deal. God isn't a big deal. Holiness is not a big deal. Morality is not a big deal. There's still dissenting voices today. Additionally, there's also conflicting voices. This person says this. This person says this. Who do I listen to? And there's a lot of conflicting voices that go on all around us. Well, my buddy says this. My mama says this. My grandpa says this. My sister said that. Who do I listen to? Not only do you have dissenting voices, you have conflicting voices, and you have competing voices. How many times are we overwhelmed with people trying to get a hold of our attention and get a hold of our time, and all they want us to do is to pay attention to what they have to say? So, those are some challenges. Those are some similarities. But like I said last week, and I'm going to repeat myself, the writer of Hebrews is making the case for this is why Jesus is Messiah, and this is why He is the only way to God. So, chapter 1. We're going to try to work through this systematically. Hmm. First argument we see there in chapter 1 and verse 1. Now, if you are 
are the reader of, if you're getting this letter of the Hebrews, just uh, if you can try to imagine. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. The first argument the writer of Hebrews is making is that, you know what, in an Old Testament context, how did they get messages from God? Well, they got messages from God, from God speaking to an individual, and then that individual then speaking to all the people. And then telling all the people, this is what God said. That's how they got the revelation. And then some of those prophets would write stuff down, and they would write down what God had told them. But the whole avenue was, is that I come to church and I say, this is what God told me to tell you. We had no general general revelation that was for everybody. And so in the Old Testament, the only means of hearing the Word of God or receiving the Word of God was through these select prophets. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, is that this is how it was in the Old Testament, but now we have a new source of revelation, and that is through Jesus Christ. So God spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament days, but now He has spoken through His Son. Well, Spence, why does that matter? Well, because we have a lot of people today that try to step up and say, well, I have a new word from God. Be careful with their new word from God contradicts the words of Jesus. Now, that means you've got to know the words of Jesus. It means you've got to know the Bible to be able to know what works and what doesn't work. But you know, sometimes we start hearing people and they're like, well, I have a fresh revelation, or I got a new word, or I got a new idea, or I got a new insight, and I got this, and I got that. Well, what do the writer of Hebrews says? The writer of Hebrews says, you know what? God's not speaking through the prophets anymore. God is now speaking through Jesus Christ, and in my personal convictions, and my understanding of the Word of God, with the cessation of the spiritual gifts, by and large, the canon's closed. That's First Peter will talk about the fact that people will try to show up and trying to say, well, I have something new. Be very, very careful. So he says in Hebrews 1, he says the first, the first reason, the first cause why Jesus is the Messiah, why Jesus is the Christ, why we should listen to Him, is because that's who God is speaking through. But then there's another argument he makes in chapter 2 and in verse 17. So not only is he saying he's going to make one statement, he's going to say, the reason why you need to listen to Jesus, the reason why Jesus matters is because that is who God is speaking through. But then there will be some people that will go, well, yeah, but well, who is this Jesus guy? Well, what, what is this Jesus guy? And the Old Testament taught that, you know what, in order to be the Messiah, you had to be a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice for their sins. Well, in order to be a perfect sacrifice, you had to be a person. So there was all these questions that were surrounding. Was Jesus a ghost? Was Jesus a spirit? Was Jesus even fully human? The writer of Hebrews in verse 2 makes it very clear. Yes, He was fully human. There's some application for us. So in chapter 2 and verse 17. Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. So the writer of Hebrews makes a second argument. It says, not only is Jesus the conduit by which God is speaking to us today, but this Jesus was fully man in the way that He was tempted in every way you are. Now, I struggle with this. Because I don't think Jesus ever went in the grocery store and saw a half gallon of Bluebell ice cream. (laughs) 
You're telling me, Mr. Hebrews, that Jesus has been tempted in every way I am, but I don't think they had bluebell ice cream back in Jesus' day. So how can we say tempted in every way? Well, the one thing we need to understand is it's not a matter of the exact type of temptation, but the root of the temptation. What is the root of the temptation when I go in and I see that half gallon of bluebell? It's selfishness. It's pride. It's arrogance. What? He was tempted with food. He was tempted with food. That's right. So, so I, I don't know. I don't. Well, he might have cake. I don't know. But they know how to cook. Maybe. I, but you know, sometimes, sometimes they're running on people, and they'll be, and they might have the argument. Well, Jesus doesn't know what it's like to be me. Tom Petty wrote that song a lot of years ago. No one knows what it's like to be me. All right. And so it's that idea that people will start to think, well, Jesus can't understand, or you face a time of temptation. Well, you know what? No one else has dealt with this. First Corinthians ten thirteen talks about the same way. No temptation is overtaking. Is not common to man. So this idea that the writer Hebrews is saying is is not only is Jesus the conduit by which God is speaking, but Jesus was fully man in the way that He experienced everything that we're experiencing. Which I think is great news. I think it's great news that there was a man that lived 2,000 years ago that faced every struggle that I face and yet he didn't sin. And we don't have to hold that up as like, oh, I'm just a miserable failure. No, we need to hold that up as sin is a choice. Sometimes we get pretty flippant and sometimes we start to marginalize sin and sometimes we start to excuse sin and sometimes we start to say, well, everybody sins and I'm just a sinner and so I can't help myself and we just give ourselves a pass. And yet sometimes we're reminded that sin is still a choice. So the writer Hebrew says, think about who Jesus, think about who, how God sees Jesus, think about how man should see Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5, then he turns to the idea of Moses. So as he's writing this to the Hebrew people, they're like, well, but how does he compare to Moses? And, and, and how is he, um, is he better than Moses, worse than Moses? Is he the fulfillment of Moses? What is he going on? So that's why he says in chapter 3 and verse 5, now Moses was faithful, and there's a couple words here I want you to notice. He was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house. So the writer of Hebrews is saying it's not the matter that they're the same. They're not in competition. Moses was serving in the house of God, in the kingdom of God. He was serving the purpose of God. And yet Christ is over the kingdom of God. Yes. So, the, and this this takes us back to yes, yes. So this takes us back to like Colossians chapter one, and in Colossians chapter one, he talks about how Christ is the preeminent; that all things are made through Him and in Him, and Christ is over the head, over everything, including the church. So, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's not a matter that they're in competition; that one is better than the other. They they have different functions. Does that make sense? They have different roles to play. And so Moses was serving in the kingdom of God and he was serving on behalf of God and serving at the the whim of God. And yet Jesus comes in and Jesus is not just Moses. He is the son of God. He is over the church. Everything was created through him and in him. And so it's not necessarily that he's better than Moses, but he's not Moses at all. 
So you're sitting there reading this, and you're like, okay, so that kind of takes away the argument of saying, well, how does he compare then to Moses? So then they come back and say, okay, so this Jesus character, can he really, can he really relate to what I'm going through? Because Moses could. Moses was a Hebrew. Moses was out there in the middle of the wilderness with them. When they were thirsty, Moses was thirsty. When they were hungry, Moses was hungry. When they ate manna, Moses ate manna. When they drank from the rock, Moses drank from the rock. When the enemy came, the enemy came against them and Moses. And so there was a certain number of them that said, you know what? How do we identify with someone that we don't even know? So chapter 4 and verse 15, he makes another argument. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confessions. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the writer of Hebrews is making the claim and he's making the argument that it's not a matter of Jesus not having any way to relate. Jesus has gone through everything we've gone through. Has he been tempted? Yes. Has he been opposed? Yes. Has he experienced sorrow? Yes. Has he experienced grief? Yes. Has he been wronged against? Yes. Has he been mistreated and maligned? Yes. Has he been attacked by Satan? Yes. Has he dealt with the hunger? Has he dealt with being destitute? Has he dealt with the rejection of people? Yes, 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 yes. So the writer of Hebrews is trying to make an argument. This is why Jesus is the Messiah. And this is why he's worthy of our adoration. Let me give you another argument. Chapter 5 and verse 5. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now who, yeah, so who is that? You might remember who Melchizedek is. Okay, Abraham. Anybody remember anything else? Just showed up, right? Okay. So he's connected to Abraham. How is he connected to Abraham? Do what? He blessed him. That's right. Okay. Does anybody remember the context? Okay, so you had Abraham and Lot. And their flocks, their holdings were getting too big. They decided they were going to split up, right? So Abraham said to Lot, Lot, you go wherever you want to go. And Lot's like, I'm going to go to the best ground, the best fertile place. I'm going to go over there. So he went down over here and Abraham went over there. And then there were some enemies that came up and where Lot was staying at came and defeated the rulers in the area where Lot was staying. And as part of their bounty, booty or loot, they not only took what the rulers had in the area, but then they captured Lot and his servant and took him to take him into service to their kingdom, their government, whatever. Abraham hears of it, remember? And he's like, 
that's my nephew. You're not doing that to my nephew. And he grabs 400 of his men and they light out after him, right? They finally catch up to the other kings. I think there was three or five kings. I had to go back in Genesis and see. But they catch up to those kings and they whoop them. Put a good old country boy smackdown on them, whoop them, and then forget, you know, they, they get, get Lot, free him, free all the stuff, and here they come back. They're coming back to get Lot back where he was, back to his home place, back to where he was at, and along the way, this guy named Melchizedek shows up. No explanation of where he came from, no explanation of where he lived. He just showed up, but he shows up as a bit of a priest-like figure, shows up, Abraham gives him an offering, gives him 10% of the spoil to Melchizedek, Melchizedek feeds him, and then blesses him, and he goes on. And then you see a couple of places in Scripture where the name or the idea of Melchizedek comes up. Now we could go off on a lot of rabbit trails talking about Melchizedek. The best way that I understand in the Hebrew tradition, the Hebrew culture, is they believe Melchizedek was the first priest. The first priest, especially during the time of Abraham. So they held, or they believed that this Melchizedek had a position of authority, had a position of prominence in their history. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that this Jesus figure, this Jesus Messiah, that He is appointed by God. He is appointed by God after the order of Melchizedek. So He's making a connection in not just the lineage, but the importance. And he's saying, so this Jesus character, he's not just any regular old priest. He is the final priest, the high priest, the priest that God has set in place to be the propitiation for our sins. So he's making a connection there to historical traditions that they would be very well aware of. Then you get to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, he goes from trying to make a case for why Jesus is God's Messiah. God put him in place, and now he's going to talk about the qualities or the attributes of Jesus. And one of the attributes he talks about is being a steadfast anchor. So he says in chapter 6 and verse 19, he says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone a, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's using this language again to talking about this is the function of Jesus. They have this really very rich idea, especially in the Jewish culture, of what the priest does. The priest was the mediator. The priest was the way they got to God. The priest was how they made access to God and how they knew they were accepted by God all came through that priestly lineage. That's why it was such a big deal on who was the priest. So when Aaron, and this was was Leviticus 12, Leviticus 14. So Aaron is there. He just got installed as the priest, the first priest after they left Egypt. And he's there and doing all these priestly duties. And then he has two boys. Remember the two boys' name? Nadab and Abihu. Remember what they did? 
So they, they, they wanted to have a little bit of attention, so they went and got this little fire sensor, and they put unauthorized fire. Now, this is one of those things I would love he would just spend a little more time. Like, what, what we're talking about unauthorized fire. Like, he used pecan wood instead of hickory wood. I mean, like, like, what are we talking about unauthorized fire? But they got this unauthorized fire, and they went wafting around in front of the people, and God was so displeased with their lack of holiness and their lack of reverence for what God said to do that God just, fire came out from the altar and consumed them. And not like burned them up. Consumed them inside their clothes because Moses then looks at a couple of the guys and says, hey, get them out of here. And the scripture says they came and gathered up their clothes and hauled them out. So you have fire coming out from the altar consuming these two guys inside their clothes. Now that is some fire retardant clothing. That is that is the kind of stuff that you need to get a hold of. But I mean you can just imagine, right? Why? Because of the holiness of God. So they had this very high view of the priest and everything came through the priest. It, it, God, God spoke through the prophets and God worked through the priest and the people worked through the priest back to God. And so what he's making the case is, is that you do not need a priest anymore because now you have Jesus. Which translates into a lot of the things that we do today where we think that we have to work our way to God. Or I think i got to do good enough. Or I think that I've got to earn my way. Or I think that it's a matter of doing better or doing more good things than bad things. And sometimes we forget that we don't need a lot of efforts and intentions. We don't need all the works about how many times I go to church. Or It's not even a matter of how many times I read my Bible. It's not a matter of how much time I listen to Christian music. It's not a matter of how much I give to God. The question is, is do I know Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior? That's the question. Because He's enough. He's enough in our shortcomings. He's enough in our failures. He's enough in the times that we trip, in the times that we falter. He's enough in the times that we fall short. And yet, so many times we start to think, well, I've got to earn my way to God. So he, he's trying to make this case. He's trying, to, he's trying to develop this argument that's difficult for us to get because we're not Hebrews. We, don't grow, we haven't grown up with this priest type figure, but he's trying to make this argument that Jesus is the high priest. And, and he, he has paid that price and we'll see in a minute what he has done. So he, he talks about um, that, that our hope is now anchored in Christ. Our hope is not anchored in the next high priest or our hope is not anchored in Melchizedek. Our hope is not anchored in Moses. Our hope is not anchored in the Old Testament traditions and the Old Testament law. Our anchor is now in Christ. And so then you get down to verse or chapter 7 and he talks about why Christ is the final high priest. In verse 23, he says, the former, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So he's saying, you know, in the Old Testament, these priests would come and go. They would live and they would die. Jesus is eternal. He's always here. There's not another priest to come after him. You ever wonder why when you get to the Gospels when Jesus gets arrested, they take him to Caiaphas and Annas? You ever wonder why they take him to both? Because they mention both of them as being the high priest. 
Does that confuse any of you all? It confuses me. Well, they knew, but one was the one was the retired, or maybe a word that you, some of you might be familiar with, the priest emeritus. I mean, it was the priest that had retired from the service, and so they, when they brought him to the high priest, the current reigning high priest, and they didn't get the answer they wanted, like we're going to go to the retired guy because he knows better than you. And, and so they're shuffling around because of the position they thought of when it comes to the, the priest. So what in chapter seven he's making the argument, and he says this high priest Jesus never dies. It's not like you need a new one. It's not like this one's going to move out. Like this one's going to change. He's always going to be here. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to skip through. Chapter 8, he talks about that Christ is the source of the second covenant. And then in chapter 9, he talks about that he is the source of our redemption. But then chapter 10, I want you to zero in or zoom in with me on chapter 10 and verse 11. Because he talks about the work that Christ did in our behalf. He says in chapter 10 and verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Did you hear what he said? So in the Old Testament time, those priests would sit there all day long. And Emma would come up and Emma would say, here's my sacrifice. And I offer the sacrifice for Emma. And then Carol would come up and she would offer her sacrifice. And Lexi would come up and she would offer the sacrifice. And then Ben would come up and offer the sacrifice. And then Josh would come up and it's all day long, every single day. And then the next day, Emma would show up and Carol would show up and Lexi would show up and Ben would show up and Josh would show up. Every day, all day long, we're going to go through this all day long, all day long, because we're always having to make... We're always having to pay the penalty and the sacrifice for our sins all day long. And he, it's not permanent. That's right. You have to do it over and over. Yes. And Jesus, you don't have to do it over and over. It's a one-time thing and you're saved. That's right. That's right. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, so when Jesus died on the cross and he gave himself as a sacrifice, that was the final sacrifice. That was it. There was no more sacrifice needed. And that's why it says at verse, uh, verse 12 in chapter 10, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time the single sacrifice for sins. So when he died on the cross, that sacrifice for sins, that was enough. That was it. That was all that was needed. And what did he do? He got done. And he went and sat down at the right hand of God. Wait. His work's done. The penalty's been paid. The price has been met. So when we sin, it's, he already took care of that. Absolutely. For those that believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, ma'am. That blood is sufficient. So what that means is, is every time one of us in this room sins against God, we don't have to go back and make sacrifices. Jesus doesn't have to stand up and go be re-sacrificed for sins. That one-time payment is sufficient forever. Well, do we... Are we supposed to ask for forgiveness, or is this already done? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So we don't have to ask. And you just, yes. It's already been done. And... Well, so there's two different arguments that can be made there. One argument is saying. When Jesus Christ paid for your sins, He paid for your past, present, and future sins. Because God knows 
not saying that you sinned yesterday, Miss Carol. I know that you're a very sweet woman. And I'm not saying that you sin today or you'll sin tomorrow. But God knows, God knows your failures. God knows your shortcomings and God knows your sin. And so when Christ paid the price on the cross once and for all and that final payment was made, it was for all your sins. So he loved you. He loves you. Now, do we still ask for forgiveness? I would say yes. Why? Because we are admitting our sin before God. We're repenting of our sin before God. And we're acknowledging our faults before God. And that's part of restoring that fellowship with God. So I say yes, ask for forgiveness. But there's also another side of it that says it's not like Christ has to then go do something else because now you've asked for forgiveness. So he done when I do the that's right. That's right. So all of this is in mind when you get to chapter eleven. Now, what do we call Hebrews chapter eleven? Chapter eleven. Yes. What do we call Hebrews chapter eleven? Heroes of faith. That's right. Or the hall of faith. Some people may talk about being the hall of faith. Now, that there's some really good names there, and I encourage you to go back and read the names and the stories. But there's a reason why it's here after chapter 10 and before chapter 12. And the reason why it's here before chapter or after chapter 10 and before chapter 12 is because the writer of Hebrews is saying, so all these things that I've been saying about Christ, all these claims I've been making about Christ, you see all these people listening in chapter 11, they believed these things. And then they acted on faith because of who, what, what they believed about God and what they believed about the Christ that was coming. And so it gives you all of these figures that the Hebrew people would look back to. And they said, I know that guy and I remember that guy and I've heard stories about that guy and I respect that guy and I trust this guy. So it would be like me sitting in the room and saying, you know what guys, and telling you some information and says, well I know it's got to be true because John Wayne, Elvis Presley, Jimmy Dean, Johnny Carson... And Ronald Reagan all said it was true. Some of you may be like, I don't believe him now. You said, you said some of those names. But some of you may be like, well, if, if the Duke said it, then I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is true if the Duke said it. So that's what he's doing in chapter 11. He's saying these people believe God. So if you want an example of what it looks like to believe God, or if you're sitting there going, I don't know if I can believe God. I don't know if I can trust this. Going, Look back at all these people that already have. And look back to what these people did because they believed in God. You have people that have come before you, examples and models and types of people that are showing you how to demonstrate and how to live out this faith. You and I are not sitting here tonight facing something new. There's nothing that we face in this life that someone hasn't already faced before us. Nothing. And you may say, well, I just don't know. This is a whole different problem that I have never faced before. No, that's not true. Someone else has faced it before. Sometimes I get stumped like today. Oh, my gracious. Today, I had this electrical issue and it just whooped me. <laughs> whooped me, whooped me, whooped me. And I don't, know about you, I don't know about you, Wayne, but sometimes it's like I just, like the electrical problem is here. I just step back and I'm just looking at it. And I think I could put a grenade in there and walk away. I could just get rid of the whole thing and start all over. But I'm just sitting there trying to figure it out. Just trying to understand. Just trying to get a concept of it. There's nothing in that panel that someone else hasn't faced before. 
nothing in your life. Sin, problem, circumstance, struggle, strife, grief, anything. Someone has faced before and someone, you look back to chapter 11, somebody has gone through it, through whatever you're going through and has been faithful. So we have examples all throughout Scripture of men and women, brothers and sisters in the faith that have come before us and lived by faith in God. Why? So that we can sit here tonight and say, I'm going to follow their example. But we don't do that, do we? God's in control, isn't He? He is. And so He tells us not to fear. But you're not a robot either. No, I'm not. Which is where we run into the problem. Because God says, Miss Carol, don't fear. And then Miss Carol, because she's not a robot, might fear. So even though God... Take that away sometimes. He's not going to be afraid and just let it go and... And do what I'm supposed to do. Sure. The, the uh, whatever happens, however it ends, it ends. But see, some people aren't nearly as easy going as you are. <laughs> well, sometimes I'm not either. Well, I'm just. Some people aren't nearly as just as just laid back. I, I wish I could be more laid back. But I like that idea. I like, don't I, fear. God's going to take care of it. I do too. Just practicing it sometimes is it's not hard. is not always it's easiest. Hard. It's hard to do. So we sometimes have. Sometimes I can. Sometimes I can't. Right, and and that's why we have examples. So you're facing struggles. There's always biblical characters that you can look to and say, they've given me a model. They've given me an example. They've given me a path to go. So he, he, that's why he says what he says in verse or in chapter ten, the last two chapters, chapter twelve and thirteen, then fits into the application. So he says because everything I've said about Christ in chapter one through chapter ten, all these things, this is my reason for why Christ is Messiah, why you don't need another priest, why Christ's penalty is sufficient, why all these things are true. Then in chapter eleven he says, and this is the example, the hall of faith, and then chapter twelve and thirteen he gives us. So this is how you put. It into practice. So how do you put it into practice? 30 seconds. Chapter 12 verse 1. Therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He says so because we have all this glorious truth and because we have this glorious example in front of us get rid of the distractions get rid of the worry and go go <laughs> that sounds so simple it's not you're right but it's like go I mean I have sat there before and I'll, maybe this won't even relate to some of you I have sat there before trying to load cattle in a trailer <laughs> And would lose my religion multiple times trying to load these cattle in this trailer. <laughs> Haul the cattle where we're going. We get there. I open up the door to the, cat, the, the trailer. And the cows are just sitting in the trailer. And I'm like, get out. And they're like, uh-uh. <laughs> well, you fought me for 30 minutes getting in. And now we're here. And I've got the door open. And you won't even get out. <clears throat> I just 
it just doesn't even make any sense to me. And then I start to think about, well, how many times did God have to push and pull and prod to get me where he wanted me to be? And then he opens the door of opportunities and I look like, uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm not doing it. Sometimes we do that. And so he says, because we have this great crowd of witnesses. Who are the witnesses? It's all the people he talked about in Hebrews, or Hebrews chapter 11. It's all the people that have come before you. It's your relatives that have come before you that gave you such a wonderful example of what godliness looks like. Because you have all these people, let us run with endurance. The race that is for us. Looking to Jesus. The founder of our faith. So he says all of these things are true about us. So let us run to Jesus. And then chapter 13, this is the last one. And I'll quit chewing on your ear. Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to Him. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought in to the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His blood. What is He saying there? He is saying that Jesus is not going to go away. He is not going to expire. The work of Jesus on the cross is sufficient for us today. He's not going to do it again. Jesus Christ is enough. So he's making this argument of why Jesus is the only way to God. Not church attendance, while that is good. Not Bible reading, while that is good. Not giving to the ministry, well, that's good. Not serving in the ministry, well, that's good. I don't want anybody to ever hear anything come out of my mouth and say, well, you know what? Uh, you got to do all of these works and that's sufficient. If you don't have a right relationship with Jesus, you're missing the point. Jesus is all you need. And you know what? By extension, what that means for this community around us here in Wellston is they don't need our ministries. They don't need our smiling faces. They don't need our benevolence. They don't need our help. They don't need a warm place to sit in the sanctuary or in here. They don't need free food. They don't need free child care. They don't need events. They don't need a parade float. They don't need all of the community outreach things we may do. They do not need that more than they need Jesus. Now, what does it cost us to tell them about Jesus? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So for those churches, or maybe for those church members, they start to think, we can't talk about Jesus, and we can't reach community until we have a new building. We can't reach community until we have more money. We can't reach community until we have a new program. We can't reach community until we have a different person, personnel and leadership. We can't reach community until we do something different program-wise. Program we can't reach community until we start this, this, this idea or this event. We can't reach, we can't reach our community and all this stuff. There's a biblical word that's called baloney. <laughs> You don't need any of that. You just need to go find somebody and tell them about Jesus. Why? Because He's the only way to God. So that's what the letter of Hebrews is trying to convince the Hebrew people. 
There's a lot of Hebrew people today that still believe the Messiah is still yet to come. Because they didn't see Jesus and they don't recognize Him as the Messiah. And there's a lot of non-Hebrew people in Wellston that don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah and they are headed to hell unless they turn to God before it's too late. So let us be a people that are like the writer of Hebrews and constantly trying to convince people and make a case and make a stand and to tell them why Jesus is enough and why Jesus is the only way. We can do that. Every single one of us in this room can do that. And it doesn't cost you anything.